Welcome to the Iron Mind Podcast. Join me, Josh Brumley, as we explore the minds of those who forged their paths through legal battles, business triumphs, and creative conquests. In each episode, we sit down with inspiring individuals who sharpened their resolve in the fires of entrepreneurship and law. From lawyers breaking barriers to entrepreneurs overcoming obstacles, we uncover the stories behind their iron wills and innovative minds. Get ready for thought-provoking conversations, practical insights, and actionable advice. This is the Iron Mind Podcast. Good morning. Today we delve into the intricate world of settling legal cases for minors and incapacitated individuals. This complex and highly regulated process resolves around protecting the interests of those who may not have the capacity to make informed decisions. Our guest, Dan Lazarus, is an expert in navigating this challenging, challenging terrain. Dan is a legal luminary who navigates the complexities of settling cases for minors and incapacitated individuals with finesse. His expertise is matched only by his passion for his hometown, making him a true community hero. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Nice to be here, Josh. I um I want to start with just a little bit about your background and your connection to the Pierce County area where I guess you've spent most of your life. Uh, that's that's accurate with the exception of four years away at college. I've spent the, the rest of my life uh, in this area. I went to a local high school in Tacoma, grew up in Tacoma. Um, went to university, uh, Washington University in St. Louis. Um, why? That's a good question. Looking back, I was 17. I was the first in my family to go to college. Back then, there was no such thing as college counselors. I had nobody to talk to, and for some reason, I passed on a full scholarship to Stanford Wow! and ended up where I ended up. But I uh, got a good education, came back uh, here, took a year off, uh, went to University of Puget Sound Law School, uh, and then later um, Seattle University Law School. But, uh, purchased UPS. So graduated from there and uh, been doing it for probably is a little bit longer than you've been alive. So we won't go into how long. <laughs> well, uh, what, <laughs> what motivated you to pursue a career in law? We don't know. Uh, and when I say we, I, I was told by my parents that when I was three, four years old, uh, I started talking about being a lawyer. And how that got instilled in me, I really don't know. Uh, might have been Perry Mason, but I'm not even sure we had a TV at that time, for God's sakes. Uh, but in any event, um, it kind of stuck with me. And uh, uh, eighth grade, we had um, career day, and I went and talked to a lawyer that was a friend of my father's. Um, and uh, this guy sat across the biggest desk I ever saw smoking a big cigar and and when I got done, said, uh, when you get to law school, son, come and see me. I'll give you a job. And so I was in my second year of law school, and I went down there cold called and walked in and uh, said to the receptionist, told her who I was, and said, I'm here for my job. And she was like, who are you? In any event, he didn't remember, but he remember, knew my my parents, and uh, so he gave me a job. And so I started interning for him. It was a two-man partnership, interning for him and his partner, and then he introduced me to his best friend, who was also a, a lawyer in a two-man uh, partnership. So I started uh, clerking for both of them uh, while I was in law school, my the end of my second year and then my third year. And then when I graduated, they decided to join forces, bring in a fifth guy. 
and offered me a partnership coming right out of law school, uh, gratis. I didn't have to pay to, to become a partner. And uh, most people don't know, but uh, partnerships in, in the legal arena, typically uh, in the better part of eight to 10 years, if you're lucky, and then you uh, typically have to buy your way in as well. So I was very fortunate in that regard uh, because I was with uh, some lawyers that were highly regarded in, in uh, the legal arena. What type of uh, practice area was it? Um, they were general practitioners. Um, one of the partners, uh, his name was Jack Tanner. Probably before your time, Jack Tanner was the preeminent uh, criminal defense attorney in the state of Washington at the time. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, I cut my teeth, my first felony trial. I sat a second chair in a first-degree murder case. A lady was accused of uh, killing her husband um, illegally. <laughs> That's what they call murder, murder the first degree. And uh, so I, I sat second chair. Uh, so this is my very first felony trial. I was called um, whispering counsel. In other words, keep your mouth shut if the jury's in. And otherwise, uh, if the jury's out, I could whisper in his ear. Um, as luck would have it, she got convicted of, uh, of murder, sentenced to 20 years of life. I had the fortune of taking it up on appeal. The Court of Appeals told me I was nuts and to go away. Took it up uh, to the Supreme Court. They accepted review. And uh, after review, I had a 5-4 decision to reverse. Wow. And so it was sent back for retrial. I retried the case and got a straight acquittal. So that was that was my first felony murder trial or felony trial that I handled on my own. But when you asked what kind of law we practice, so I started criminal law. Uh, the other uh, senior partner was primarily personal injury, and so I was doing personal injury work. And then, of course, as the youngest member of the firm, I, I took everything they threw at me. They wanted me to learn a little bit about everything and not too much about anything. So that's that's how I got my start. Awesome, awesome. So you became a jack-of-all-trades. How would you get into uh, being an SGAL? Um, a friend of mine was partners with um, a, a lady lawyer that I knew. I didn't know her as well as my friend, but I knew her, and, and uh, I was over there with some frequency. Anyway, she ended up becoming a court commissioner. And as a matter of fact, to this day, she's still a court commissioner. And I want to say clo clo probably 20 years ago, uh, she knew I did personal injury work, and I think she probably figured out or thought, she, thought I knew what I was doing. And so I was... Uh, asked if I would be interested in doing an SGL case. And of course I had never done one. And so she appointed me and that was my, my first go round. And I, I guess, you know, that they would go back in the, uh, after court and have conversations. And it, I did a few of those and then other commissioners started appointing me. And, and now, uh, it seems my shelves are never without a, a number of volumes on there of uh, settlement cases, settlement regarding land cases for minors or incapacitated adults. So uh, I guess fast forward, they think I know what I'm doing because they, they still appoint me with regularity. Uh, and, and actually, it's more than regularity. It's all the time. And that's mostly Pierce County or uh, only Pierce County? I don't go outside Pierce County. There are other SGLs that I'm friends with or that I know that are doing it in multiple counties. I... Uh, I'm busy enough with the Pierce County appointments as well as my my own practice. I still practice personal injury law. I still do a couple of other things. 
of a minor nature, but I'm at this point I'm semi-retired, so I'm uh, I'm picking and choosing that which I want to do, uh, but I don't want to do too much because my dogs like to go for walks. A man, a man who takes care of his dogs. What a, a hero! A hero, yes, the the man we need for the job here. So, can you tell us for people who are listening who have no idea what an SGL is or what your job in the process of resolving these minor cases? What do you do? What is an SGAL just generally? <clears throat> SGL is it's a required appointment. For anybody under the age of 18 that's been injured with a proposed settlement of their claim, uh, it also, as you indicated in your lead-in, applies to incapacitated adults. So that'd be somebody with diminished capacity who uh, needs protection, if you will. Uh, so the same thing with minors. We assume, obviously, under 18 that they need protection from themselves as well as others. So the Washington State law requires, in which they did not require uh, years ago when I was first practicing, requires that an SGAL, Settlement Guardian Ad Litem, uh, me or like me, be appointed. And when I say me or like me, uh, I think the requirement is at least five years um, uh, practice uh, under the belt so that you've got somebody that has some idea of what they're doing. Preferably, if it's an SGL case, it's uh, five years of personal injury work because uh, you have to be aware of a lot of different aspects in order to take care of these cases properly. I tell people all the time, it doesn't matter if you have an attorney representing your child or whether the child is pro se, meaning the parent did not hire somebody. And that happens with some frequency. Somebody will get in an accident, an insurance adjuster will call the parent and say, you know, I know, you're, I know Johnny was injured. We'd like to extend an offer to him uh, of X dollars. And the parents, uh, in the circumstances where I am appointed to say yes uh, because I only am appointed or someone like me only appointed when there is a proposed settlement out there. Um, and so, again, it doesn't matter if there's an attorney or not, uh, not an attorney. And my responsibility, I'm not acting as an attorney, but I'm using my experience as an attorney as background in order to navigate the case. And my job essentially is to look at each and every aspect of that case as it relates to the child. Uh, and I tell people all the time, you know, I, I, tell, I talk to mom, and I say, you may be a nice lady, but you're not on my radar. I, I don't represent you. I can't give you legal advice. I represent only your child. And uh, if I step on your toes in the meantime, I apologize in advance. But that's my job is to protect your child and do the very best that I can to make sure that the proposed settlement is fair, that it's reasonable, that it's appropriate. And when I say the settlement, I've, I've told people, it's a, you know, it doesn't matter if your child has been offered a million dollars. The real question is, what's the bottom line? And if the case is worth $2 million, then the answer is no, it's not a fair, reasonable, appropriate settlement um, in the context of if there's that much money available. So uh, when I say I look at the entire case, it's what are the facts of the accident? What's the law that relates to that factual pattern? Uh, what are the injuries of the child? What's the treatment of the child? Uh, what are the medical bills related to that treatment? Is there insurance? Uh, is it automobile insurance like PIP, P-I-P, which is personal injury protection to pay the medical bills? If there's not PIP, is there medical insurance? Is it uh, 
um, Medicaid, is it Medicare, is it private insurance, and all those things have different um, aspects and affect the claim of the child differently. So I not only look at the proposed settlement uh, and again the, the injuries and the treatment, but well, who's got their hand out? Who's asking to be paid? Uh, is there a lawyer involved? Um, that's one of the, the, the sticking points with me because I'm, I'm not very well liked sometimes. Uh, and it seems to be with more frequency as I get older uh, because I, I hold lawyers to their responsibilities. And um, for the most part, I deal with people that are well qualified and that uh, represent their children or their children clients, uh, child clients. Uh, to the best of their ability, but uh, as with any profession, I run into situations where that's not the case. Um, I have situations where attorneys say, uh, for example, I'm, uh, I love it when they say I'm, I'm on a one-third contract uh, signed by the parent, meaning I get one-third of whatever the settlement is, and my answer is uh, that may not be true. Um, the child had no dog in that fight. The child did not know who you were, did not hire you. The parent did, and of course the parent acts as the agent uh, or guardian or parent, whatever you want to call them, for the child. They may uh, agree to the wrong lawyer or the wrong contract amount, and so I have to look at what the attorney did to see if the attorney earned the fee, because again, it affects the net to the child, and my job is to make sure that all aspects are fair, reasonable, and appropriate. So not only look at that, I... Uh, I have to look at the what's called the subrogation claims, which is the claim of an insurance company that has paid for medical bills um, and who wants repayment contractually. Typically, uh, medical insurance uh, relates that if we pay for your medical care and if you're going to recover from somebody else, you agree that we will get paid back. So I have to make sure that, that uh, those charges are correct charges. I make have to make sure that uh, the amount being requested is reasonable, uh, not only on the gross amount, but there is case law that provides for reductions of those subrogation claims in certain circumstances. Um, <clears throat> so I also have to look at liens. Uh, that's where a medical provider has uh, extended services but has not been paid. And if they file liens, um, uh, again, I have to make sure it's done correctly. Uh, for example, uh, there's a Washington State statute that says on uh, on a settlement, uh, the liens shall not exceed 25% of the settlement amount. And many attorneys miss that. You know, they may have uh, uh, some medical providers with their hands out requesting uh, 35 or 40% because that's what they build and that's what the treatment was. And so I have to, uh, if you will, stick my nose in to tell them that uh, you may have done a good job for this child, but uh, by law you're not entitled to that much and you have to consider reduction, or I'll file a report that says you get nothing. And so uh, it, it's, you know, I've probably gone far afield from your question, but <laughs> again, at all aspects of it, um, including... Uh, if I recommend approval of the settlement, what happens to the money? And you've got a child that's under 18 or, a, again, an, an adult that has disability issues. Um, we need to protect them from themselves and from predators. 
Um, in the old days, I, I saw parents even that took their child's money and spent it. Not that they were stealing from their child necessarily, but they thought that it was okay and they needed it to, to pay bills or put food on the table or something like that. Well, sometimes there's a conflict there because that's a parental responsibility that shouldn't come out of the child's money to, uh, that they're being paid for their injuries. So um, I look at that and typically it's uh, what's called a blocked account um, in a bank until the child reaches 18 with no, uh, no uh, funds being removed without court order. Many times these days with um, larger settlements, um, I promote what's called a structured settlement, which is a, an annuity or an insurance product, um, but um, it's placed with that insurance carrier and the, the payments are extended out way beyond 18 typically. And there's a number of reasons we want to do that. A is for uh, uh, interest rates are much better in that type of vehicle, typically, especially since uh, the economic meltdown in 2008 and 2009. Most recently in the last year, we've had some pretty decent uh, interest rates with banks, uh, especially credit unions, about 5%. But um, again, typically a structured settlement not only pays better in the long term, but um, the parent can make a decision now to keep those funds out of their child's hands way beyond age 18. And uh, I don't know about you or other parents, I've got three males that uh, are my offspring. And so I would not want any of my male children to have a large sum of money at age 18. You know, where's it going to go? Girlfriends, hot rods, cars, lost, who knows? <laughs> but, uh, you know, my, my, my children at age 18 were 18 going on 14. Uh, that's just kind of my call on those things. Plus a large settlement coming in at between 18 and 22. Colleges can look at that and they can use that as an asset to deny you a scholarship or deny you um, some type of funding or Pell Grant, or whatever grant might be available, they, they can tell the parent, no, you need to use Johnny's money first, and then we'll, we'll kick in some, um, some financial aid. So that's, that, that's a way of getting around that. And so I typically look at that, and, and I leave it to the parents. Uh, hopefully, most of the time, they, they have their child's best interest in mind. I talk in terms of having a large sum of money, perhaps available at age 28 or even 30, uh, when they're in a, a better mindset and maturity to perhaps buy a house or um, some rentals or to do something with those funds so that they're not dissipated. Well, that's, that's, that, have to talk much. That, that's, that's most of what you do, I think, but still not even all of it because there's, there's a oh, ton even. more questions here. Um, so that's, that's sort of all of the steps that you as an SGAL in Pierce County have to uh, go through. But when, when an attorney gets a case with a minor involved, um, how do they get you appointed? What's the process to get an SGAL? Why do we need an SGAL? When do we need an SGAL? Um, there's, there's lots of questions that kind of spring off of everything you said, but I, I, I want to make sure that we're, uh, educating people who are in car accidents, who don't have an attorney, educating people who have children who have been in car accidents because the insurance companies might 
have their own vested interests and um, educating attorneys who might not know about, you know, the, the requirement for an SGAL. So let's start with how do we get an SGAL appointed and when do we know that we need one? Well, you know you need one when there's a proposed settlement for, I'll just say, a child under the age of, under the age of 18. Um, most plaintiff attorneys, meaning attorneys that practice in this area of law as opposed to dabble, know that the law requires the appointment of an SGAL, so they will petition the court for the appointment of somebody. Um, and some attorneys still think that they can name a certain SGAL as a proposal for the judge or the commissioner to appoint. Um, that's not true in Pierce County. Again, I don't practice outside Pierce County. I don't think it's true in most others either because um, cherry picking comes to mind. Yeah. You know, my best friend does PI work. I do PI work. I appoint him. He appoints me. Uh, there's a, you know, there's a, a cloud hanging over that appointment already from, from the outset uh, because you want independence. You want somebody that has no ties or connections to make the calls because sometimes the calls are very difficult. There are other cases where the insurance company attorney uh, will apply to the court or petition the court for an appointment of an SGAL. They'll do that as a uh, gratis for the the child's attorney at times. They'll, they'll talk among themselves, and, and it doesn't matter who applies for the petition or makes the petition and files with the court. So a lot of times they will do that as well. Um, I don't really see, except in very rare cases where there's been a settlement of a minor's claim without the appointment of an SGAL because the insurance companies know that it's not binding. And so if they've paid the child and the child or the parent comes back five or ten years later and says, you know, you paid my kid 1500 bucks, and he's ended up with all these problems and uh, physical and um, psychological issues. Um, and so we want to reopen the case. And so that's that's the uh, the potential problem for the insurance carriers. So they, they rarely, rarely will uh, settle a claim. If it's really nominal or a child was involved in some type of uh, accident, let's say, and the child truly wasn't injured because you're only entitled to be paid to the extent that you have damages, and uh, the child was just uh, uh, upset or crying for five minutes or something like that. No physical injuries, no psychological injuries. They may extend a small payment just to close the claim out, knowing that the likelihood of somebody reopening that claim years later is very, very, very small. So... Uh, I really don't see that too much. Do you think that in so uh, that's a, that's a great segue. Um, do you think that it is the plaintiff's duty in cases where the child has no injuries, but an offer of settlement is made as sort of resolution of of the case with the parent who who maybe did have some minor soft tissue injuries? You know, we're talking about uh, less than twenty five thousand dollars total for everybody in the car. In these situations, do you think that the plaintiff's attorney has a duty to still get a, a, a settlement guardian ad litem involved when the payout for the minor child is is $500, $1,000, when it's so nominal and the, the child didn't receive any treatment and didn't have any visible injuries? Is it still a requirement? Well, there's no limitation on the amount. 
And so if it's five dollars, the the law applies. What I see with attorneys getting around that is they'll say to the parent or the parents, you know, you were driving, uh, you you've got a herniated disc that required surgery or some significant injuries, or or the the um, passenger spouse uh, had to go to chiropractic for six months or a year or something like that. And the child was in a car seat sleeping and didn't even wake up. Um, I see attorneys that don't sign up for the child. They don't take the case. As a consequence, they're not bound to get an SGL appointed because, A, they didn't take the case. B, there's no proposal for payment to the child. Or the insurance carrier, and I've seen it, uh, will deal with the attorney representing the parents. And then they'll have an SGL appointed to represent the child that is unrepresented to look at it and to make a determination because they want to get that claim off the books, even if it's only a $500 or $1,000 <clears throat> settlement, which these days I, I really, I don't see anything like that. They, that's non-existent almost. It's non-existent to, to have a child who's a passenger in a car receive a settlement of 500 or $1,000 because they're frequently. Correct. Oh, I, I see uh, these, <laughs> I see these days and I shake my heads uh, or my head. Why didn't I get this kind of treatment, uh, 25 or 30 years ago? Uh, I've got a case right now. Um, it's a dog bite case Four individuals, grandma, grandpa, and two grandchildren involved. And, uh, two dogs attacked the um, dog that the grandparents were walking, which actually was the dog of one of their daughters. And the grandparents were fighting off these dogs that were kind of a pack mentality to them. Uh, circling in the end, one would bite, the other one would circle, then they'd retreat and bite and back and forth. And so the grandparents ended up on the ground fighting these dogs, trying to save their daughter's dog from being destroyed because it was pretty vicious. And these two children, one was, uh, I want to say 10 and the other six, uh, were just in the periphery, basically watching, didn't get bit, uh, observed, obviously, what happened. Um, so no physical injuries. And then when I talked to the mother, of course, I know there's going to be significant psychological injuries. And she said, no, there weren't really any. They, they, they observed what happened. They were concerned uh, more about the dog, their aunt's dog, than their grandparents. And when I asked about the children, you know, and I, I get into it, uh, you know, what kind of nightmares, what kind of sleep deprivation, wetting the bed, you know, whatever it might be that are symptomology or symptoms of uh, psychological injury. And, and she said, actually, they were good to go. I asked them, how are you feeling? What are you talking about? We're fine. Um, so there were there was no... There were no psychological injuries that I could really delve into there either. And the insurance carrier offered 10000 bucks for each kid. Um, I, I, when I initially got that case, because it was a limits case, meaning the, the insurance carrier for the homeowner that owned the dogs, he said, I've got $100,000. I'm going to put it on the table. You decide who gets what. And the family among themselves, grandma, grandpa, uh, the mother of the children, and the sister of the mother of the children who owned the dog got together and made a determination of what they thought was fair and reasonable for division of those proceeds. And again, I'm appointed to represent the two children. 
So I don't really care what their determination was unless it fits. Um, and I came in with the expectation that I was going to um, reapportion or recommend reapportionment for a greater amount to those two kids because I knew in my mind going in when I saw the video uh, what was going to be the result as far as psychological injury, and that proved not to be the case. And so I had to kind of put my uh, opinion tail between my legs and accept what they proffered because the children were actually being compensated for more than their injuries, more than their damages. So that's that's the sort of thing that I have to do. Portionment cases are very difficult for me. And apportionment means when there is a global settlement of all of the limits and say there's a motor vehicle accident where mom, dad, three kids in the backseat of the car, but it's a $25,000, $50,000 policy. The insurance company says, here's 50,000 bucks, figure it out between yourselves. And the attorney for the family says, well, I'm not allowed to determine how much these children get and how much the parents get. We got to get an SGAL to say who's going to get what. That's what apportionment is, right? That's correct. And so when you get a case for apportionment, you dive into the injuries of these children and what you what what are your findings historically like do you see that attorneys will try to give more money to the parents or when the parents speak with you do they try to keep more money from the children is that why SGLs exist to make sure parents aren't taking the money from the children no i i really the first part of your question i really don't see that where the attorney's trying to front load for the parents because um, I saw that more in the past. And that was very troubling when I, uh, um, when I would get a case and the attorneys proffered a division of the proceeds to me. Uh, so first off, that law firm or that attorney has an ethical issue because they're representing multiple um, clients that are competing for the same fund or same amount of money that's available. And so any attorney that would say, I want mom to get 50 and the child to get 10 could just as easily say the child should get 50 and the mom 10. Uh, that's just a reversal of the apportionment uh, availability. But in doing so, they're taking money away from the child or taking money away from the parent and it's an ethical violation. You can't wear multiple hats. And so plaintiff's attorneys have gotten smarter, which is um, I represent the family. There's no sense making four individuals go to four different lawyers to re represent them so they can fight amongst themselves over the monies. Rather, I will tentatively, as the attorney, settle the claim with the insurance company for policy limits, if that's all there is. Now, I've done my job to get every nickel available, but... It is not my job to decide who gets what, just like you said. It's for the court to decide that. It's for me to formulate an opinion to give to the court. And by the way, what I do at the completion of my investigation, which includes not only looking at everything related to the accident, but also interviewing the parent or parents, interviewing the child, if the child is age appropriate, um, and then I file or I prepare and file a written report that goes to the judge because the judge ultimately ultimately makes the decision. I don't. Uh, fortunately, I, I, I've had them fooled for years because 
Um, I don't think I've ever had a commissioner or a judge make a decision contrary to my opinion. And so um, that's comforting to me to know that um, if I put the time in and I put the effort in and really wrestle with the hard questions, that uh, credibility will be assigned to me for that rather than second-guessing me, typically. Carpet guy's working hard for you back there. He is. I can move anytime. No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, I think, I, you know, this is this is a frustrating part of practice as a young attorney um, kind of delving into a practice that people like you have been involved with for decades and um, going up against insurance companies who, who frequently will, I believe, bluff things that are just blatantly against the law. And I'm going to read an email correspondence that I had with an opposing attorney from an insurance company, and I'll leave his name out of it, but it said, I would also note that due to the low amount of the settlement and the overall cost of SGAL, this is a matter that could be resolved without an SGAL, but your paralegal indicated it would be necessary. My response said, attorney, can you point me to the statute that allows me to resolve minor settlements without SGAL approval? It's my understanding this practice is against the law and insurance companies encourage this behavior to reduce costs. I'm happy to change my mind if you show me where it says that I can. And he backpedaled real quick about that and said, oh, you know, just some plaintiff's attorneys really encourage us to do this and that. And he hasn't brought it back up to me again since. But I believe that this, this practice is really prevalent and the cases you and the court are seeing are the cases that are doing it the right way. And the attorneys who are struggling to do it the right way because there isn't training that exists that I've ever found, you know, thank you for being available to help me to understand this process in the past and help me to answer questions with regard to Pierce County and to help people by being a part of this podcast. But I think many attorneys who either dabble in personal injury, which as you mentioned before, could be an issue because you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what statutes exist and you can't, dip your toe in something and assume you're not going to make mistakes that hurt your clients. And the insurance companies really pounce on that kind of behavior. They, they do a great job keeping track of what attorneys are trial attorneys, what attorneys have been in this industry for a long time and what attorneys don't file lawsuits. But in, in my understanding, even if a lawsuit is not filed, if this case was just a demand letter was sent and the insurance company makes an offer, and SGAL is always required. That's my uh, that's my position. I think that's the best position to be in, and that's the best position for an attorney who's who's representing clients to be in, without putting your client at at a disadvantage or putting this child in a position to not be made whole. Right? You. you and remember, I I wouldn't be privy to the situations that you're talking about. Because I'm appointed as an SGAL, and that's the path I go down. I don't. I'm. I'm not on the path where an insurance carrier has tried to circumvent the requirement. I, I will point out um, my appointment or people like me that are appointed. It's uh, called SPR 9816W. 
the special rule in the court rules. And it does provide, uh, and it's kind of a head-scratcher, that um, an independent uh, individual or independent attorney can represent in these circumstances. And the only time, as opposed to an SGL being appointed, and the only time I've ever seen that happen was when uh, an attorney uh, and somebody in Pierce County who I think highly of, very ethical, very honest, knows what he's doing, withdrew as attorney for the minor. Uh, it was not a limits case. So there was no apportionment issue. Uh, and uh, not only withdrew, but then asked the court to allow him to investigate and report as to the settlement for the child as an independent he didn't have a dog in the fight. He had no financial stake in it. And the court allowed him to do that, which in turn uh, ended up with more net money for the child and ended up with no SGL fees um, being um, ordered. And I, by the way, I should point out that uh, somebody may be saying, well, who pays me? And I'll tell you, it's the insurance company. Um, I have never, I, I've had insurance companies come in and say, you know, he charges too much, he took too long, he's too slow. Or why should we pay for the uh, SGAL? Um, let, the, let the child pay for it out of their proceeds. And again, the child has no say in uh, having to have an SGL appointed. The child didn't have any say in being injured, uh, has no say in, in having to go through the court procedures and system. Uh, and so the, my position is the insurance companies know an SGL is required. They build that into their um, their offers uh, uh, when as they go along, and and so my fees and SGL fees, in my opinion, should always be paid by the insurance company. The only time I've I've had real issue with that, I've had a few uh, insurance company law firm attorneys come down in Pierce County and, and argue about my fees. And uh, they've been unsuccessful. Um, you know, in, in one one case especially, there were three SGALs, and my fees were about I want to say fifteen, eighteen hundred dollars more than either of the other two. Well, all three of us represented minors. All three of us were involved in the same case, and the so the uh, the attorney for the insurance company for State Farm, whoever it was, came down and said uh, they wanted my fees cut back to the same level as the other two. And the, the judge that was sitting happens to have been a personal injury attorney for 30 years before he took the bench. And I know him, not that that mattered, but I kind of smiled and I said, first of all, I charge more per hour than these other two, number one. Number two, uh, they both came to me for advice on what to do on various issues on this case they didn't know what to do or weren't sure what to do and wanted to know what I was doing. So I spent my time uh, educating and informing them. I said, but more importantly, my fees are greater because of the attorney for the insurance company and what they did from the inception on this case. They had me appointed as SGL for all three kids. That was an ethical violation because this is a limits case. I cannot apportion monies between three kids that are competing with each other for the same set of, for the, for the amount of money that's available. And so when I, it took me time digging into this case to 
get to the point where I realized I had an ethical conundrum and where I got to the point where I realized that I had to withdraw on two of the children and, and have the court appoint uh, independent or separate SGLs for the other two kids. And so I wrote to the attorney that's here arguing against my fees and said, would you please take care of this? You did it. You can go into court and say, oops, I messed up. I should have had three appointed. I didn't. Mr. Lazar should be recused on two of them. Somebody else appointed. And the attorney didn't do it. And so I had to file the motion. I had to file the declaration. I had to appear in court. I had to prepare the order. I said, so I spent more time by reason of their screw up. You know, and, and I got to their very end. I said, you know, um, when I was in law school, ethics were hammered on us pretty hard. And uh, and I understand why, but I for some reason I think counsel didn't uh, didn't go to those classes. <laughs> so she was, she was not she was not very happy with me. But you know that's the sort of thing that I deal with all the time. But so that's that's great um, segue again into uh, if there are multiple children and it's a limits case, there's no way that one GAL can represent multiple children if it's a limits issue. Nope, that's not true. Okay. Just, well, the case I just talked about with the two children with grandma and grandpa. That's a limits case, $100,000. Two minors, so you would think, based on what I just said, that I can't represent both those minors. But when I looked at the case, when I had, and, and I'll just back up a little bit. What's really frustrating for me is when an attorney doesn't send me everything I need. You know, I, I, I want to build this puzzle, and I'm, if I'm missing three pieces, I, I can't do it. Right. And so sometimes they lead me astray, and I, I go down a, a, a path or a journey, and I find out things are not as I thought they were, and I have to backtrack and kind of start over. But in this case, for example, again, grandma and grandpa, $100,000 limits. Uh, grandma and grandpa uh, both sustained physical injuries and scarring to their hands. Uh, the, the dog almost died, uh, thousands of dollars in vet bills. Um, I had, I had to look at that carefully because the mother of the dog, based upon the, propo the proposed apportionment of the proceeds was asking not only for her vet bills, but her lost wages. And I felt, and in my heart knew there was a component in there for her suffering by reason of staying home from work for over a month to care for her suffering dog. Well, in the state of Washington, you're not entitled to be compensated for that. You know, the, uh, you've got the little old lady walking down the street with her poodle, and uh, the poodle gets away off the leash for a second. The car comes around the corner and kills the dog, and grandma's all alone, and she's had this dog forever, and it's, it's her surrogate child, and that dog is worth a million dollars to her. And in the context of what is she entitled to be compensated for is 50 cents. I don't mean literally, but it's very little. It's the value of the dog, not, not the, uh, dog. the emotional impact or psychological of the grandma. The dog's and value, that, yeah. that, you're, you're asking me about if there's more than one minor child, do I always have to step back and have somebody else appointed? Most of the time I do. In this case with grandma and grandpa and the attack, uh, on the on the dog, I did not because 
if I was going to propose a reapportionment where these two kids got more than 10000 each after I found out, which I thought I was going to find out about all the psychological injuries, which, of course, we talked about that did not occur, I was not going to be competing, having the children compete against each other for funds, but rather compete with their grandparents or their aunt that owned the dog that wanted a million dollars for the suffering. So I was going to take away from them not between the children. So when there's a competition between the kids, I can't do it. I see. Makes sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. And so exponentially, the more children in the car or the more severe the injuries are in the car, the more likely for a conflict with you. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then in the apportionment context, then, and I think I said it earlier, that's one of my most difficult assignments because... I have to look at the injuries of every claimant. I've got to look at the medical bills of every claimant. I've got to look at the treatment. I've got to look at the residuals. I have to look at, are there collateral sources for payment? For example, um, if there's one claimant, uh, a friend of the family that's in the car, and that friend of the family has personal injury protection insurance to pay her 25000 in bills, whereas the people in the car don't have PIP. So I, I have to look at all sources, uh, all availabilities, and sometimes people don't want to share that with me. You know, it's like none of your business. You told me in the beginning you don't represent me, so I'm not going to share it with you. Uh, I haven't run into that too much, but it, it can be a, a, a little bit frustrating um, because I, I want to get it right. Um, you know, you, you nod your head and you say yes, and you... Uh, you know, people say, I understand why you were appointed. Um, I go to the back to the beginning. And the beginning is my job is to do my very best with my legal abilities and my experience, but not acting as an attorney, as a guardian angel for this child. And you would think that that translates to getting the most money that I can for the kid. And that's not necessarily true because in the, in the case that I just talked about with grandparents and the dog attack, I could have easily assigned or apportioned more money for these children if I thought it was reasonable appropriate. Probably the, the case that comes to mind, the biggest conundrum that I had as an SGL, again, my job is to represent the child. I've got a case now that's not even been completed. Um, a bad guy intentionally ran over and killed a father of a young child and a fairly young bride. Uh, and it was horrific. He, the police were chasing him. Uh, he nailed this guy in his driveway, drove him into his car, over the top of his car, through the garage, just in any event, uh, a very ugly situation and criminal charges for, for uh, uh, murder because he did it intentionally are pending right now. And so this case came to me uh, as an uninsured motorist that guy had no insurance. Uh, the decedent and his wife had, I'm trying to think, two, 250 available. And um, so this is no, the, the, the father of the child did not have a will. So I've got to look at probate statutes to see who's the heirs, who's entitled to what. Is this separate property? Is this community property? Then you have to go through those gyrations. 
Then I had to look at the wrongful death of the father. Uh, then I had to look at the loss of consortium of the child, the loss of the parent-child relationship. So I've got all these things running around in my brain on, on how to approach this case. And when I talked to mom, uh, mom has another, this child was only, oh, four, five months old. Uh, and this is last summer when dad was killed. She has another child that's 10, not a child of the dead husband. And um, I talked with her at some length about her employment, her lifestyle, her income, her bills, all those things. And uh, she lives in the Lakewood area, commutes to Bellevue every day, and has for the last 10 years. Her and her husband lived on a shoestring, uh, paying for the family home that they were in the process of remodeling to add a bedroom for the new baby. That's kind of fallen apart. She had some insurance money from the employer. That's gone. Uh, I had to look at the whole thing, and I, I, uh, I formulated an opinion. It should be equal, 125000 to each. They're both equal heirs, if I want to just look at it from that aspect. And I decided to reapportion, and my recommendation to the court is that mom get 175 and the child get 75000 um, so that she can use those funds to raise this child and another child now, I determine, in my opinion, is it's more important for that child to have a roof over his head and food on the table and a mother that may be available to, to uh, be home more hours than otherwise. Uh, and so, I, again, I represent the child. And is that, is that the best thing economically for the child? No. Best thing for the child as far as um, having the ability to be raised by a mother in a more comfortable setting. Yes, and so I have to live with that. And there will be people that will shake their heads and say, uh, that's not your job. And, well, I think it is. I think it is too. And I think that that's a, a, a great reason for you to be the guest that I chose to be on this podcast. I think many people don't... You mean I don't get paid for this? <laughs> well, send me a bill. We'll talk, I guess. Uh, I might try to take you to court and get it reduced for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The insurance company. Will pay yeah, you. hopefully. Well, and what's your what? It, that's a great uh, another point that we should bring up here. What's your billable rate that you charge for doing SGAL work? Uh, you don't want to know. Okay. Uh, My hourly rate's five hundred dollars. Five hundred dollars an hour. SGAL cases, I bill regularly at four hundred dollars, and I put that in my declaration. So. And if they want to come in and argue that I'm charging too much, I'll just bootstrap and say, well, you know, I've got 20 hours in this case. Let's add 100 bucks an hour that I didn't charge you. Yeah, you're getting a discount. It's a built, it's a built in defense. <laughs> so it, it, does 20 hours usually get it done? Is 20 hours kind of your standard? Is there a standard in motor no, vehicle no, accidents? There is no standard. My, uh, my appointment under the special rule that I uh, indicated provide specifically that my time, the, the amount of time I devote to the case should be commensurate with the value of the claim. So if it's, if it's really a, a kid that stubbed his toe, uh, I have cases with no medical treatment. I don't have to go through medical records or bills or, or liens or subrogations or all that. And so my time is probably one-tenth.